Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of Mav Geeks, a military aircraft obsession. My name's Jamie Gordon and this is... Well, my name is Ginny Carlin and it's so, so good to have your company for this episode. If you're just joining us and you're thinking to yourself, oh my life, what have I come to, what have I let myself in for? Please, please stick with us because you might just enjoy it. Now, Jamie, you need to tell me all about your week. What's been going on? Do you know, I haven't got a great deal to tell. You can see the season's changing and it's winter coming and I hate that. But apart <laughs> from that, it's been quite busy, but a um, bit of a also ran, really. OK, so last night um, I went to bed sort of quite early, about half past ten. Uh, I live in a little Derbyshire village and I can hear it outside the window. It's a flipping helicopter. Comes to the village. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's this? Have a quick look on the old flight radar. And it's the Lincolnshire and Nottinghamshire Air Ambulance. Come to our village, circling round. And as you can imagine, our village is quite agricultural. There's uh, cows everywhere. It's, and it, it's really hilly. But honestly, the absolute talent of this helicopter pilot bringing this helicopter down onto this field I mean I, I don't know what went on you know really hope that everybody was okay but it just made me think you know here at Mav Geeks we love the military aircraft we love the civil aircraft as well don't get me wrong uh, but we don't really think too much about the helicopters but the skill involved uh, with those guys from the Lincolnshire and, and Nottinghamshire um, air ambulance and all the air ambulances around the country I just lay there thinking like, oh my gosh, these guys are going to have a really late night tonight. They were going back to RAF Waddington. But what absolute skill to do that. And doesn't it give you kind of a warm feeling inside that there are people out there on a really blustery night like last night, looking after people. And that's part of our aviation community and I love it. Absolutely. I mean, it's fantastic to know that they're there. And of course, a lot of them have to be funded by donations because I don't think there's central funding for, for them all, if any of them. So they're doing a great job, but they need our support. Just like the RNALI, the uh, aviation version um, needs some pennies thrown at it from us. Definitely. And I was thinking, Jamie, that what we should do, we should do an episode all about the air ambulance and how cool they are and what they do and the brilliant work that they get up to all the time. Because they're bound to have some ex-military pilots in there as well, which will make it even better for us. But you're absolutely right. They deserve all our support. Now, um, this week we are pretty much focusing on one location. Tell us all about it, Jenny. Well, Jamie, it's absolute pants weather at the moment. You know, you don't know whether you need a coat, you don't know whether you need an umbrella. It's just all over the place. But I'm going to be taking you back to a time this summer, maybe one week in the summer where we actually had some sun. You can smell the, the burgers, you can smell the Mav Geeks, let's just say. Uh, because we're going back to Duxford. Duxford Air Show happened in June this year and and I was just privileged to be there. Beautiful, beautiful day. Got to see some amazing aircraft. So we're all ducks fitted up to the max now. And it, uh, I can tell you that um, you managed to meet such a variety of people, as you'll discover in this episode. But first of all, let's start off with our American colleagues. And who did you get to speak to and where's he from? Do you, do you know, that sounded just like Blind Date then, <laughs> Jamie. Uh, <laughs> it's always nice to see the American Air Force come over from Lake and Ethan Mildenhall. It brings a bit of the old razzmatazz, I always think, to Duxford. And the guys were there from Mildenhall. They, they kind of bring a little stall over, they sell T-shirts and stuff. Everybody always gravitates over to them and the guys from the 351st Air Refueling Squadron were there who are of course part of 
the 100th Bomb Group. Now, if you look into like the, some of the history of the 100th Bomb Group, the D-square on the tail, that goes right back to a unit in a place called Thorpe Abbots in Suffolk, which were nicknamed the Bloody 100th because they had so many losses during the Second World War. And to see these guys watching Sally B, the B-17, fly over, part of their heritage, uh, you know, it kind of gave me a bit of a lump in my throat, really. These guys obviously really, really loving seeing their legacy um, of what they're doing now and stuff. So I got to speak to this guy. Oh, he was so much fun, Jamie. Master Sergeant Jeremy Hall. He works out of Rammstein Air Force Base in Germany, but was on deck at Milden Hall. Just loving a bit of Ducks for Sunshine and so eager to talk about the beautiful lady, which is the KC-135. So we come here and I'm, I'm attached to the 351st Air Refueling Squadron. We're just out here having a good time. You know, just offering up things to buy for, you know, shirts and, and swag, if you will. <laughs> That's what we call it, swag. So our shirts and our patches and our coins and things like that. Just out here enjoying the camaraderie of other flyers that are out here. I know that you guys have uh, had, shall we say, an increased tempo recently. Obviously, as a, an aviation geek, I'm pretty I'm pretty sweet on the KC-135, probably not as much as you are. Uh, but how is she handling in this increased tempo times? Uh, the good thing about this aircraft is it's dependable, right? So it's always, it's, it's doing what it needs to do. We're always there when we need to be there. Uh, the thing about this that makes this aircraft dependable is the maintenance group that we work with and the maintenance squadrons out here and the guys and gals that keep that aircraft going for us. So still handles well, still gets the job done, especially operational. Most of the things we do out of out of Milton Hall out here are operational anyway. So yeah, there's an increase in ops, but it's still dependable aircraft, still getting the job done. Because I mean, she's a pensioner now, isn't she? Six I'm, I'm sure that's the pensionable age for, for a lady in the UK. Um, I was taught never ask a lady what her age is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, first ones were made in 56, wow. so yeah, they're getting up there in age. But one of the things I'm really finding out here at Duxford is that people who fly older aircraft, shall we say, is proper flying rather than, you know, you're not flying a computer. Right, yeah, it's not, it's... It, while it does have autopilot and whatnot, it still is a lot of, when you open it up and start looking at it, it's still a lot of cables and pulleys uh, actuating flight services and, and just, it's it's a pilot's aircraft. We love it. Hands I love down. that. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell when you're talking about it how much you love the aircraft. Uh, what's the future for the aircraft? Because we're saying, you know, she's kind of knocking on a little bit, but I know with like the, the B-52s that they've had their life expectancy increased again. Will that keep happening with the KC-135? Right now, we've got the 46 that's come online. This aircraft right now, as far as I understand it, I don't see it dropping off any time in the foreseeable future. Uh, again, just constant updates that we're getting. We just had new software and some upgrades, glass cockpits and things put in here. Hmm. So I don't see, I don't have a vision on when it's going to go out of service. If it's me, I'd keep it in as long as we can keep it in. That's just me, though. <laughs> you keep sticking it together with gaffer tape and, and keep it. it going. That's it, yeah. <laughs> spitting elbow grease goes a long way. Do you know what I was going to say to you? Because we, we just stood outside the American hangar with a, so much beautiful American hardware in there. Do you just go in and have a sniff? <laughs> we can, yeah. <laughs> so the, the crazy thing, no matter what airframe it is, there's a smell to the aircraft. Yeah. They all smell the same. You walk into, uh, into there and you walk into um, a B-17 and it smells the same as like whenever you walk on the KC-135 now. It just, it's, there's just, there's something particular about it and you know that, I, I don't know how to describe yeah, it. I know just it. what you mean. It's like getting into an old car, isn't yes. it? I've got an old car. It's like, yes. getting, yeah. You just sit there and you just, ah, uh, you feel at home is what it is. Cool. That's got, me personally. One last question for you. Oh, no. All the, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> all, all, all these lovely aircraft in here. Obviously, you know, you fly on the lady, which is the KC-135. If you could have the chance to fly on any of these aircraft, even these that I've not flown for a long time, is there any in there or maybe in the main hangar that you've seen that you'd think, mm, I'd like to go on that? Mm, I would like to take a flight on the, on the, Lan- the Lancaster. That's the one that I would like to fly. I right. like big aircraft, yeah, yeah. but just that particular aircraft, just the, the heritage and the legacy it has behind it, yeah. you know, it carried a large load. And yeah. it, I don't think it's given enough credit as far as the load that it carried in World War II. I would love to take a flight on that thing. And, and just, the sound of it as well with right. the Merlin engines, just right. beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that's a very good choice. Thank yeah. you so much for your time you today. What really lovely guy, Master Sergeant Jeremy Hall of the 351st Air Refueling Squadron talking to Ginny there at Duxford uh, earlier on in the summer. Now, Duxford has um, a special place in, in my heart because, not least because I've been there a few times and I love it. But on one particular occasion, if I can just drop this um, small name, if I may. And I've got to start with our, our later much missed colleague, uh, Richard Hutchinson, who set this thing up at Duxford. Basically, Gary Newman had an aircraft there <laughs> and it was a Harvard fighter trainer, which was used in the Second World War. And he, um, you might recall in the early, well, the early to mid 80s, he had a fairly bad track record with a couple of accidents and it made the papers an awful lot. But trust me, he was uh, an absolutely fantastic pilot. Now, Richard, as I say, had set all this up, spent a lot of time organizing it when we got there he said i don't want to go flying and I, i'm not saying he bottled it i mean you know what he was like he was a very <laughs> quiet gentleman and he decided he just didn't want to go flying that day and he said to me do you fancy it and i well I basically tore his hand off basically because um the opportunity to go flying in, in a with gary newman and b in a world war ii fighter trainer was something i couldn't pass up and of course the trainer was actually liveried in the japanese insignia so the long and the short of it is that we went flying for about 25 minutes and the vast majority of it was um, aerobatics and he's a mighty fine pilot i can tell you so that just sticks in my mind he was the loveliest guy very very accommodating he even took us for breakfast afterwards uh, a little chef up the road oh uh, so that's my dropping a name on, on mav geese this week um, i went flying with gary newman and it was brilliant can i just say jamie the next interview that i've got is all about a solely electric plane so but let, let's talk about this oh my gosh right i freak out thinking about this about a battery operated plane because i leave my phone to get to 10 percent, and then pray it sees me through the day so i'm thinking about going up in a plane having like the you know the little signal comes on five percent what we're going to do it doesn't work like that though have a little listen to my next interview it just blew my tiny mind, Jamie. My name's Sam Watmo, and I'm flying the Pipistrol Velis Electro aircraft in the display. Okay, so I'm completely out of my depth with electric aircraft. It's the first time I've actually ever even heard of an electric aircraft. Can you kind of give me a bit of an idiot's guide? Is that okay? Absolutely, absolutely. It is an evolving technology, and it's a new technology, so not many people have heard of it. The Pipistrol Velis Electro aircraft is the world's first fully certified electric aircraft in the world. So what that means is it's met all the required standards to meet the absolute top tier of safety for flying and taking people flying in any country in the world. So what are the differences or the, even the similarities with performance to, say, you know, a, a non-electric powered aircraft? So there are differences, absolutely. What Pipistrol did is they took an existing airframe that traditionally had a, a petrol-powered engine and they've put in an electric motor. And that gives all the differences that you get as you would do in a Tesla car. So you get in it, you turn it on, and 
absolutely nothing happens and you're not even aware that the motor's ready to go. Once you open the power up, the propeller starts turning uh, and it gives you that instantaneous power, which is absolutely fabulous. And it's about the same kind of power as an aircraft of its size with a petrol engine. It's, it's about the same. When you take the power off again, if you're on the ground, there's no drive to the propeller, so the propeller stops. And that's not only confuses the crowd, it confuses air traffic control as well, because they think you're not ready to go or you've had some kind of engine failure. So how long has this whole concept been in the making for then? So electric aircraft have been in development for many, many years. And really it's been about making battery technology catch up with what we want to achieve. Batteries by tradition are very, very heavy, but with these lithium polymer batteries and electric car development, that's really driven it forward. Now aircraft manufacturers are actually able to look at it and say, we can get an aircraft flying using battery power and the batteries are no longer too heavy or too bulky to use. So we're getting there with it. So how long does a typical battery last for? How much flight time would you have? So in the Pipistrol, we're getting about 50 minutes to uh, empty batteries. Now, obviously, you don't want to take it to empty batteries. Uh, not only is that a bit scary, but also it's not good for the battery health. And we always land with a safety margin. But typically, we can probably go for about 30 minutes in the air, absolutely comfortable, which makes it entirely plausible for a reasonable length cross-country flight. So what's the future then? What's the future look like? Because obviously this is developed, but it will have to develop more. Is this the future of sustainable aviation? It's certainly one step along the journey. There are a lot of consumers out there that want to learn to fly, but are concerned about the carbon offset and the sustainability and the damage to the environment. So now we're finally able to offer flight training and personal private transport in what is effectively a carbon zero aeroplane. So you can have all the fun and not have any of the guilt. <laughs> Sam, I've got to ask you this. Obviously, you've been kind of been in this from the beginning, developing the aircraft. I want to ask you if you've got complete confidence in the aircraft, but I kind of know the answer to that. Do you know what? I really do. Now, it's got a lot of safety systems in it. The aeroplane's a lot more intelligent than I am. So if it's got any hint of trouble, just like your car, it's going to give you a warning well in advance with plenty of time to land somewhere and, and get a mechanic to look at it. But actually, being solid-state technology, you haven't got all these moving parts like you're doing in a petrol engine. Actually, there's much less to go wrong. It's very simple. You get in, you move four switches up, it's ready to fly. You go flying, when you finish, you move those four switches down again. It's so simple, it's, it's wonderful and so reliable. So who do you see would be the consumers? Who would be the people that would buy aircraft like this? So actually, it's a great platform for learning the basics of flying because you can get in and go flying and it flies beautifully. So people that want to learn to fly, it's such a simple, straightforward aeroplane. They can really harness sort of the real love of flight straight away without all the complicated bits that go with traditional training aeroplanes. Otherwise, for private owners, if you just want a carbon zero aeroplane to go and enjoy a summer's evening with a low noise footprint, don't upset your neighbours, don't pollute your neighbourhood, why wouldn't you want to do that on a nice summer's day? That's brilliant. Thank you so much much for your time oh you're very welcome thank you that's sam watmo talking about his pipistrelle valise and given the story i told before it our plane's electric oh my gosh jamie if you were on britain's got talent i don't know if you'd be being sent home or if you'd be through to the next round with that one good grief uh, so next up we've got john smudge <laughs> smith oh my life this guy talks more than me jamie but what an absolute legend what he didn't know about the bristol blenheim it wasn't worth knowing it kind of ran through his veins. I'm pretty sure he was in his 80s. I, you know, I don't want to do him dirty saying that in case he was like in his 60s and he just had a, a hard paper round. But I'm pretty sure that he was in his 80s. The passion was there. I could have sat all day and listened to him. And to be fair, 
he probably would have talked all day if I'd given him the chance. But here he is talking about his absolute life's passion, the Bristol Blenheim. Well, my, my name is, is John Smith, although invariably I'm known as Smudge because it's a force's nickname for Smith. And um, I'm very much involved with the Aircraft Restoration Company, which, of course, the uh, it was the company that oversaw the building of our Bristol Blenheim. And uh, I've been involved with the Blenheims for some 45 years, uh, along with a number of other people here. The, uh, we've seen it built three times now. Um, unfortunately, the first one, it was built completely voluntarily, and uh, that was built over a 12-year period. We're all aircraft engineers in our own right, as such, but not necessarily working here. And unfortunately, the uh, aircraft flew on the 20th of May 1987, but it was crashed at an air show at Denham on the 21st of June, so it lasted exactly four weeks. Unfortunately, the pilot was doing things that he hadn't practised into a, an aerodrome that was a bit short for our, our experience. So the aircraft crashed and it was uh, destroyed, but the three crew members on board survived, me being one of them. So, it's a, as I said, I've got more successful takeoffs than landings now, so I don't know how I address the fact. That must have been terrifying. It's all happening so quickly, although people turn around and say time slows down. In those, it does happen very quickly, but of course, it, but your mind takes it in completely. So, you're looking at how you can try and survive, and, uh, and you're trying to sort of get yourself into a position where you, you, you because we weren't strapped in, because the manoeuvre was completely unrehearsed and of course not practiced uh, before we went and did that particular move. And quite frankly, I think if I had been strapped into the position, I wouldn't have survived. Anyway, we decided we weren't going to be without our Bristol Blenheim. So we found another airframe and, we, and six years later we flew again. So that was aircraft was flying for about 10 years. Then unfortunately, a different pilot, because of the circumstances, hit the bank at the end of the runway here at Duxford and it was completely, again, damaged. The then owner decided to pull away from the project, uh, so John Romain, who's the aircraft restoration company, and myself, we, we set up Brenham Duxford Limited and to restore the aircraft. In the meantime, we'd been given a nose from a Mark I, but this had been turned into a car by a chap at Bristol. And uh, he, the Mark I nose was uh, survived in the, in the, in the scrapyard at Bristol Airplane Company. And this chap, he, a chap called uh, Ralph Nelson, he asked if he could have the nose. And he and his metalworking mates at uh, Bristol Airplane, he turned it into a car using an old Estin 7 chassis. But the best part about it, it was battery powered. So he was driving around Bristol in a battery powered car f until 1957. Anyway, he donated this nose to us. Mm. Uh, we didn't believe he had it by the, in, in the first instance because we hear these stories. But when the second aircraft crashed, we decided, well, we can do, we can actually convert this back to a Mark I, the short nose Brennan rather than the long nose. And um, it took a lot more work. And, uh, but the best part about it is that when we found the data plate inside the nose, we'd found that it had been built in 1939 by the Avro uh, aircraft company under license from Bristol and we got its service number then we found that it actually been a Battle of Britain night fighter so it's got uh, something like 28 missions in the Battle of Britain although of course the high the aircraft we have is a little bit of hybrid it, it, it's a Mark 1 nose on, a, on what would be in a Mark 4 uh, Bristol Blenheim Bolingbroke but they are the same airplane you know so what the aircraft you see here today now is, is essentially a Bristol Blenheim Mark 1 that saw service in the Battle of Britain it's a tremendous amount of work. We do a lot of it in our own time. It's just a fascination for that particular aircraft. Yeah, you know, we've been so pleased. We get so much response from the public. Unfortunately, the historians, they tend 
They print so many stories about the Blenheim not being a good aircraft or that it's got shot down in droves and things like that. But we, uh, in the Bristol Blenheim Society, we're doing a database on Blenheim. We've got every single operation that was carried out by Bristol Blenheim in the Second World War. And in fact, it does actually show that the aircraft wasn't shot down in droves, as the historians tend to regurgitate. I've just completed 107 Squadron, which used Bristol Blenheim from 1939 to 1942. They carried out 3,356 operations. Including in doing, certainly in 1940, uh, they, were, they, were, they were crossing the channel at least two and three times a day into occupied Europe. And um, when you did the actual statistics, they were losing one aircraft every 40 missions. This is not a high attrition rate. Mm. So is that the historians really need to look at the, the, the operations of the Brenham again before they start putting in the print and saying the same old things. Fascinating conversation with Smudsmith there about uh, the, uh, the, the trials and tribulations of restoring aircraft, Ginny. It really, I mean, his story is unusual, I, I, I grant it, with the amount of uh, versions he's had to go through. But it's those type of people, and I think they're getting fewer and fewer, unfortunately, mm. that keep our aviation heritage alive. Definitely. Three times, definitely a charm when it comes to smudge. So our last interview was all about a most fantastic aircraft. I saw it. I was just gravitated towards it. I couldn't keep away from it. This aircraft from the Cold War, honestly, Jamie, it I, I just felt like I'd walked into an, one of the old, you know, the boys sort of sci-fi magazines of that era, the de Havilland Vampire. What an absolute iconic bit of kit. It just like a spaceship, you know what I mean? It just like it's something uh, from like the Apollo times. It was just beautiful. And I got to speak to one of the pilots there who not only flew this amazing aircraft, but also was a majorly big deal in the Norwegian Air Force. Tintin, you're here today, obviously with a beautiful vampire, but this isn't your day job, is it? No, my day job is uh, actually back in Norway. I'm the uh, wing commander and uh, the station commander for Erlon Air Base, where we have all the Norwegian F-35. So I'm in charge of the Norwegian F-35 and also the Norwegian uh, air defence systems, uh, NASAMS. The, the whole air wing has got a connection with the UK, hasn't it? Yes. Uh, 132 wing was actually founded here in the UK during World War II as 132 Norwegian wing, and it's our 80-year anniversary for the wing. The squadrons were older because they were here earlier, but the wing was put together in preparations for D-Day. So it's very, very nice to be here for our 80-year anniversary, to be able to share some of our shared history uh, and be able to um, commemorate those who have gone in front of us and, and make sure that we can live free and safe society as we do for both the UK and Norway today. So tell me what your job is like day to day. Imagine it's quite different each day, but what's a typical day looking after all those F-35s? Well, as a station commander, I, I need to make sure that uh, the entire wing and the entire station is ready to, to keep our uh, jets capable of flying. So running the airbase, but also in charge of the aircraft and the aircraft operations. And we also have the Cure Ray, which is deployed further north, but we're also in charge of the readiness alert for the F-35 uh, being close to Russia and doing intercepts uh, on a quite regular basis to ensure uh, NATO's high flank in the north. Now we talked a little bit about the F-35, an absolute beautiful aircraft, but you're here today with an equally beautiful aircraft, a little older, a little more different. I could ask you if there are any similarities between the two, but I'm guessing there's not too many. There's very few similarities. When I fly the Vampire, I'm truly feeling that I have to go back to the proper trade of flying 
flying. F-35 and F-16, which is my background, there's a computer that helps you make sure that you are flying, and flying is very simple. In the Vampire, it's almost like a steam locomotive with, <laughs> with bells and whistles, and, and you have levers you have to pull, and, and it's proper manhandling of the aircraft and making sure that you fly it just to fly it. So a lot of that attention goes to the flying, but it flies beautifully. It's a, a harmonized on the controls. It's a very, very nice aircraft once you get it up to speed. And it, it does fly very beautifully. And, and we love showing it off. There's not that many of them left. It's a first generation jet fighter. It was Norway's first jet fighter. So we're very proud to have it and have it airborne and to take it around on venues like this here at Duxford and, and show it. So your colleague gave me one of the best quotes of the day when he described it as the ultimate gentleman's air carriage, uh, which, I, which I thought was a, a great way to describe. I mean, is she quite forgiving when you're flying as well? Up until a certain point, but uh, she can be grumpy if you're not treating her nicely. So you definitely have to make sure that you're on, on the, the good side and, and she will uh, make sure that you are being uh, well taken care of. So why do you think it's so important to keep these old aircraft running? Because it's not cheap to do so. It's not cheap to keep them safe and maintained and restored. Why do you think it's important that you do that in Norway, that we do this in the UK, that people do it all over the world? I think it's very important to know your history. You need to know where you come from to be able to appreciate what we have today. And if we don't look back over the shoulder, we are bound to do the same mistakes over and over again. And these aircraft represent both good but also some bad decisions of mankind in the past. And I think it's very important to show our history and to learn from history and make sure we don't make uh, the same grave mistakes over again. Colonel Martin Tintin Tesley, who to my mind just has the best job in the world, daytime F-35, nighttime vampires. And actually, I was looking at um, some photos of vampires during the course of the interview, and there's one in a kind of silver livery, and it reminded me of a flying version of the Aston Martin that Sean Connery, I think, drove in one of the Bond films many moons ago. They are absolutely beautiful. Now, next week, something slightly different as we mark International Space Week. Yeah, we've been speaking to loads of different people from across the space world. I spoke to Melissa Quinn from Seradata, and until very recently... Uh, was working at Spaceport Cornwall. And I spoke to arguably the most enthusiastic man I've ever met, um, a guy called Delian Asparohav, who's uh, CEO and co-founder of the Varda Space Industries. And they've got something literally orbiting at the moment, which does lots of things. But what I was interested in is it's a hypersonic testbed. So basically, they're looking at how things will react in the future as, as we all have to go hypersonic if we want to start exploring space in a really meaningful way. Way. I just cannot wait to hear these interviews. They're going to be so good. And lastly, Jamie has been speaking to Dr. Paul Bates, CEO of the UK Space Agency. So really looking forward to playing you that interview. But that's just about it from us this week. What we'd really like you to do is get in touch. And even better, if you've liked what you heard or you've got some pointers, then write us a review because we'd really be keen on that. I know the bosses would. <laughs> Most definitely the bosses would. Uh, and if you do write us a review, please write us a nice one. Uh, but it just means that we can carry on doing this because we love it so much. Uh, so until next week, remember, if you want to get in touch, you just mavgeeks at bfbs.com. And we'll see you next week with Space Week. Boldly going where neither of us have been before. And with two bad jokes for this episode, Jamie, courtesy of you, I think it's time that we go now. Ta-ra! Bye. <laughs>